And now it's time for Dave's Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle Tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. But he understands its place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. So come along and take a listen to Dave's thoughts about the Walt Disney World Resorts and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, today I wanted to talk about some of the big productions that Disney has out there and talk about the entertainment aspect of the Walt Disney Company and some other things outside of the theme parks. And I wanted to start by talking about Disney's parks, the Disney Parks Christmas Day Parade and how it's become this sort of odd sort of mix of self-promotion and uh, promoting the Disney Channel stars and some of the other people who are related to Disney and how it's moved away from where it started Uh, what was it, 25 or 30 years ago now, when it was actually the um, Walt Disney World Very Merry Christmas Christmas Day Parade. And what they would actually do is show the live parade as it came down Main Street and talk about it. And they would pause it at times and when they went to commercial and stuff, and they'd have various breaks built into it so that they could actually show the parade. Then over time, what they started to do was actually uh, start the parade, and they'd actually film some of the parade coming down the parade route, and they'd actually use some of the filmed clips to get some of the scenes just right. And then over time, they started to evolve a little bit and show more of the, the recorded version and less of the live version, and then they started to expand it out and show some of Disneyland, and now it's really the Disney parks, so it's really both parks. It's not just Walt Disney World. And it's really not the Christmas Day Parade anymore. It's this other parade that they put together that they film about, oh, three weeks before Christmas where they're actually out there and they're filming these things. And it was kind of funny in watching it. As I'm watching the parade going on, there was there would be some scenes where uh, Neil Patrick Harris would be out there and he'd be talking for a moment. And then they'd show a scene of uh, some parade group coming down the parade route, and it would be early in the morning. Then they'd show another group, and it would be later in the afternoon. Then they would show another group, and it would be early, early morning again. Then they'd show another group, and it would be very late afternoon. And it was kind of funny how they'd switch back and forth based on the shadows that were coming across the, the uh, street. You could actually tell what time of day it was. And it was just kind of interesting to me the way they were doing that. But um, it's kind of weird because it's not the same parade it really was. I mean, it used to be back in the day. Originally, it was Joan London and Regis Philbin reporting, and I guess they'd go in the crowd and they'd talk to people in the crowd. And it was real guests in the park that they would talk to. And now it's really about promoting the celebrity aspect of uh, who's at Disney World and who's at Disneyland and making sure that both parks get equal playing time and they show the latest attractions and some of the latest inventions. So they talked about My Magic and they talked about Fast Pass Plus and they did some things and, hey, good for them. And I'm glad they do that, but it's just a different experience than it used to be. Not that I don't really like it, just that it's very different. Uh, it's not the same Disney experience. It's not that same homey experience. Now it's sort of this corporate experience. And it's just not quite the same. But that's the way it goes, I guess. That's how things evolve over time. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk about was several of the Disney movies that have come out recently. 
Well, maybe a couple of them aren't that recent. I've had a little time recently to sit down and watch some movies. I've got a little vacation from work. Kids are around, and we started watching some Disney movies. We went to the movies a couple of times, too. I started by watching Wreck-It Ralph. Now, I hadn't seen this movie before. Wreck-It Ralph is a very clever movie, and I was totally impressed by the way it came together. I really didn't know what to expect. I had heard people say that it was a pretty good film, and it was very uh, well thought out. And as I watched it, I sat there and I went, wow, this is really kind of neat because it's a little different than the traditional Disney story because you're looking at it from a different perspective. Uh, You're watching the the, uh, story develop and you're seeing these video game characters kind of come to life as a result of what they're doing in the story. And it's very, very clever. And I enjoyed it thoroughly. I didn't expect to enjoy it. But once we started meeting Ralph and Mr. Fixit and Vanellope, it was really pretty neat. And there were some interesting developments in those characters for being two-dimensional graphical characters that were, uh, that were on the screen. There were some nice development there, and they really uh, showed some characters. And they really kind of came to life as you, as you watched them. And I thought it was really pretty neat. I don't want to spoil it for anyone. If you haven't seen it, I would highly suggest you see it. And if you have, let me know what you think, because I really thought it was a lot of fun. That was, it was a really fun movie. The other one I saw was Monsters University. I didn't get a chance to see it when it came to the theaters. The kids had gone to see it, but I hadn't. Now, I didn't like it as much as, say, uh, Monsters, Inc. I didn't even like it as much as some of the other uh, movies that Pixar has put out. But I did enjoy it. There was a lot of fun things that happened. I mean, seeing Mike Wazowski and uh, uh, James P. Sullivan, Sully, uh, get to know each other is kind of clever. And there were some cute little scenes in there. And for those of, us who, those of us who have already been to college, it was kind of fun to kind of capture that college experience to a point where you kind of get that, that feeling something like college. And it was kind of fun to see them develop out and, you know, see what happens behind the scenes. And there was a nice little story that developed there where, you know, they were going to be drummed out of the, out of the uh, scare business because they did something wrong. And it was really kind of neat the way they set it up. And, you know, uh, Sully was basically a slacker who was relying on his dad's uh, good fortune. And uh, Mike really wanted to make it. And it was really pretty neat the way they, they set up the storyline and how everything worked out. And how everything played out all the way to the end, and how you develop these other characters like Randall was there, and he was, uh, he, he was really friends with Mike early on, and then he got mad at Sully, and he goes, that's going to be the last time you're going to get me. Kind of fun to see that develop, and it was just a nice little movie. I thought it was well done, totally enjoyable. Glad I got to sit and watch it, because it was a lot of, a lot of fun. And uh, so that was, that was really neat. Then I got a chance to go to the movies, and I saw the movie Frozen. And Frozen was a lot of fun. Um, I wasn't sure what to expect with that one either. Uh, I had read a couple of reviews and people said, yeah, it's pretty good. And the thing I really like about Frozen, you're seeing it from the other side. So you, you're really seeing, basically, the villain as the main character. And she's a misunderstood character. And that's very clever the way they set it up because it's so different than your traditional Disney movie where you're looking at it from the princess aspect and you're seeing the villain come into the story. Here you're seeing what, pre- what we presume is the villain But she's a misunderstood villain. And it's very clever the way they set it up. And then the way they turn the story on its ear just a little bit as you go through it. And the the moment near the end when the prince says, maybe you should find someone who loves you. It's just so phenomenal the way they set it up. Now, I, I don't think I gave away any great spoilers there. Because you really need to watch the film to understand how this all comes together. But it's really a very nicely done film. And I, I like some of the, uh, the other characters that they bring out, the uh, snowman and so forth. They're, they're very, uh, very clever. And they provide a little humor in there, the, uh, the, the uh, deer as well. And, uh, you know, just the way they kind of all play out. It's really pretty neat. And the two sisters and their interaction is reminiscent of, you know, the way siblings interact. 
So it was really pretty clever and nicely done. And uh, I thought it was some, some nice writing and some nice directing that kind of fit it all together. And it was a good, good story. And uh, it was well worth the price of admission, and I really enjoyed it. You know, and that, that's unusual for me to say about a Disney movie. A lot of times you come out of it and you say, yeah, that was okay. You know, it wasn't great, but it was okay. And I don't go to see a lot of Disney movies in the theater for just that reason. A lot of times I'll rent them. Now, the Pixar, Pixar films, I tend to go and see in the theater because they're usually pretty good. Um, so I saw Planes earlier this year as well. And, eh, I, was, I wasn't as thrilled about that one. It was kind of like cars up in the air, and it just wasn't that great. But it was, it was entertaining anyway, and I felt, didn't feel cheated or anything. I just didn't feel like it was the greatest film I'd ever seen. So Frozen, I felt like, was really fun, and uh, I was really glad that I went to see it. And uh, I really enjoyed that a lot. I mean, I thought it was just, it was well worth seeing. And then finally, the last film I wanted to talk about, and this is the one where I really wanted to get into the most detail, is Saving Mr. Banks. Now, before I get to the actual review, I was sitting in the theater, and they started showing all of the previews that they show before the film. And it was probably 30 minutes of previews. It was unbelievable how many previews they were. And I don't know how many other previews other people see. Um, I don't know if that's the total collection that they put with all the movies when they distribute it around the country or if it's regional or whatever. But I'm watching some of the early previews and I'm thinking to myself, what the heck? Why are these bound with a Disney movie in this way? And some of them were a little mature for the audience, even though Saving Mr. Banks is a PG movie. I felt like some of the previews they were showing were a little more mature than that. And some of them I just thought would just look dumb. The movies just look silly. And I'm like, why am I watching these previews? And I'm seeing the whole film while I'm sitting here. So it's funny how they put those together sometimes and they package them. I just had to say something about that because some of them were just so ridiculous. But there were two previews for Disney movies in there that I thought were interesting. The Million Dollar Arm, where there's an agent who finds a couple of Indian prospects and gets them to uh, pitch for a major league baseball team. This I had read about previously. This story uh, had come up before, and I thought it was pretty well thought out, and it looks like it could be a potentially fun movie. That's another one that I'll probably rent. I probably won't uh, go and see it in the theater, but it looks like it could be pretty good. And then the new Muppet movie. Wow. That one looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm watching the Muppet movie preview, and I'm thinking to myself, this is one I'm going to see, because it looks like there's going to be a lot of fun in it. You know, the, the storyline looks very well thought out, and I'm thinking to myself, this is very clever. It's much more Jim Henson-like in the way that they've set it up and the way they've written it. And I can't wait to see it, because I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So that's one I'm really looking forward to seeing when it comes out. It doesn't come out until, I think it was May, so it's early summer. But I'm still looking forward to seeing it when it does come out. And I, you know, I, I think uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to see Kermit and Miss Piggy and everybody kind of get back into the, into the swing of things. And have another fun movie, uh, kind of like the uh, you know the original Muppet movie and maybe the Great Muppet Caper in that genre, where it's just fun and it's interactive and you're just enjoying yourself and kind of losing yourself in the moment. I loved the uh, the new Muppet movie that Jason Siegel was in. As you, if you've heard my previous podcasts about it, you know how much I was fascinated by the story and what came together there. So I'm glad to see that Disney is taking it to the next level and really building on the characters to go along with it. Oh, ladies and gents. Comical poem, suitable for the occasion, extemporized and thought up before your very eyes. All right, here we go. Rooming for everyone, gather around. The constable's responsible. Now, how does that sound? <laughs> Dear Miss Persimmon. Yes? Winds in the east. Miss coming in. 
Like something is brewing, about to begin. Can't put me finger on what lies in store. But I feel what's to happen, all happened before. I'm sorry, where was I? And now I want to move on to the main review I wanted to talk about, and that's Saving Mr. Banks. Now, this was a really, really good movie. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I took my kids. They really enjoyed it. And uh, I thought it was well worth it. Really thought it was great. And I'm going to give you a couple of spoilers here. If you want to see the movie and you don't want to hear this part, you might want to skip ahead to the end. Or you might want to watch the movie first before you listen to it because there are a couple of spoilers in here. Now, let me just say that this, this was a very well thought out movie. It uh, brings together the storyline of how uh, the Mary Poppins story uh, came to be in the Walt Disney uh, archives, how Walt Disney came to own it and produce a movie starring Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews to be Mary Poppins. And it actually, uh, the story actually starts before this movie takes place. It starts in the 1940s when Roy Disney approached uh, approached P.L. Travers about selling her work to uh, the Walt Disney Company so that they could produce a movie about it. And over the course of the next 20 years, it went back and forth, and they asked several more times. And P.L. Travers, Mrs. Travers, as she's called, uh, kept saying no. She had no interest in selling the story. Now, as the story goes, and you'll hear this in the, in the actual movie, it was very personal to her. Um, and it was really about how the uh, nanny came in and she was trying to save Mr. Banks, who was essentially her father. And that's really what it comes down to. That's what the whole story revolves around. And she didn't want to sell it because it was very personal to her. Emma, Tom- Emma Thompson is a fantastic curmudgeon uh, P.L. Travers. I think she's just she plays the part so well. And um, they do a nice job of kind of framing the story. So you start off in present day, you go back to the past, you go uh, current day again. And current day, of course, being the 1960s when she first met with Walt Disney at the Walt Disney Studios. And they go back and forth and back and forth between the time periods when she's, uh, when she's still living in Australia and uh, back, to, uh, back to current day. And it's really nicely played out that way, where they go back and forth, and they're showing you some of the things that happen, the backstory that really fills in the blanks to help you to understand what goes on. And then a little while into the story, they introduce Tom Hanks as Walt Disney. Now, I have to say, when Walt Disney, a.k.a. Tom Hanks, came on the screen, I was moved. He was really, really, really good in that part. He was totally believable as Walt Disney. He had the charm, he had the magic, he had that sort of... Uh, ability about him, that way that you would think Walt Disney had. And it was really, really well thought out. And I thought he was tremendous as Walt Disney. I thought uh, he did a really good job of playing the part. And he was totally believable in that part. And that just made it for me because it really gave that emotional response where you thought you were watching Walt Disney on the screen. And so the the interplay between the two of them is great. And it's really uh, well done. I will tell you that As I've said in previous podcasts, there is no smoking in a Walt Disney production these days, and Walt Disney was a heavy smoker. But there is one scene in the movie where he's stamping out a cigarette, and he makes a comment to the effect of, I don't like to let people see me smoke. It's a really bad habit. Now, Walt may or may not have said that exactly, but he didn't like to let people see him smoke. Everybody smoked at the time, so it it wasn't really that big a deal. He still didn't like people to see him smoking in general. Everybody knew he smoked. He did have a cigarette in his hands quite frequently, but it just wasn't something that he would do all the time in front of everybody. Uh, so there's a, uh, that's a little twist to the, to the story there. Now, there is one little uh, side note here that comes out. 
and Tom Hanks talks about it for a moment uh, in some of the interviews he does, is that uh, you'll know, it, you may notice at Disney, there's always the two-fingered point. And uh, the cast members are always pointing with two fingers or the whole hand to tell you where to go instead of pointing with one finger. And the cover story is that they don't want to insult any foreign guests by pointing at them. And it's a great story, and it's true, and that's, that's certainly part of why it's done. The other reason it's done is because Walt Disney would point with two fingers because he had a cigarette between his fingers, and that's so he wouldn't drop the cigarette. So there's a little bit of a more of a story to that, so it's interesting how that kind of plays into the story. And, you know, that whole smoking thing was really an important part of who Walt Disney was, so you can't really lose sight of that. But putting that aside, everything else about it was really well done. I thought they did a nice job of kind of capturing the moment and capturing the 1960s and capturing the feeling of what it would have been like for Walt Disney to, uh, to work with P.L. Travers. Now, the uh, story takes a very Disneyfied view of, uh, of the world. They you know, talk about how everything worked out okay and P.L. Travers was kind of happy and everything was you know, rosy and you know, everything kind of worked out. And it's not really quite that way. It wasn't quite that easy. Now, she was a curmudgeon. She did actually ask them to record every session so that she would capture everything that happened, right? She wanted to make sure that she was, that she was getting everything that she wanted out of the film. Now, she really didn't want animation, and she didn't want any songs, and she fought it and fought it and fought it and fought it and fought it. And her goal was to edit the script and then be able to come back later and, and make some modifications. Well, first about the script. The script itself... Don and the Sherman Brothers really wrote the script. The, if you read the original Mary Poppins, there were five books that were published before 1960. And in those five books, they're all kind of short stories about Mary Poppins coming in from the East and uh, helping someone out with whatever job it was and then leaving as soon as the winds changed. That was the whole point of the story. But there was nothing cohesive to bring it all together. They were just five individual stories. So Don and the Sherman Brothers wrote an actual script that went along with all of these stories and kind of tied them all together with a lot of individual things that made it all work because there were so many things that were kind of missing from the story. There was a, you know, there was needed to be a thread, something that happened, for example, making the mother a suffragette uh, so that uh, she would actually have a meaning why she needed a nanny, you know, those types of things. It all kind of makes sense. So they tied together the story. So when P.L. Travers came in, she was reviewing the story, and she was making decisions about whether this script would make sense and uh, whether it would uh, make a good, good follow-on to her books and kind of fit together with the books that she had written. So that was kind of the point of why she was there. Would this script actually tie together what she was thinking? So they worked through all of this stuff for the, over the course of two weeks. That's pretty much true as I understand it. And they did record all the sessions. Now, what Mrs. Travers thought she was going to do was she was going to write the script, she was going to edit the script, get it together, and then she was hoping to go in, and when they started uh, filming the movie, uh, she wanted to be there and uh, be on the set and actually make some adjustments to certain scenes as she felt they needed to be made. And then she wanted to um, get to the editing phase and be able to cut out certain things that she didn't like. The problem was that her contract only called for her to review the script and then have final script approval. That's it. So when it came time to actually film the movie, she said, oh, okay, when do you start filming? And uh, Walt Disney said, really doesn't matter to you because you're not involved with the filming. And she was upset. And then she thought, well, okay, when are you going to start editing the movie? We'll catch all of that when we start editing it in the the editing room. And he said, well, I'm sorry, my dear, you're not invited to the editing sessions because that's not in your contract either. 
and she was livid. She was really upset. She held a grudge for the rest of her life. Now, she lived to the ripe old age of 96, so she died in 1996. And until 1996, when she died, she would have no connection with the Walt Disney Company, except for one thing. When it came time to do the, uh, the stage production in, I guess it was the late 1980s, they were putting together the stage production of Mary Poppins. She actually allowed Disney to take it and make a musical production on stage under two conditions. The Sherman brothers were not to be involved with it because she didn't like their music, though they could use the original music that was in the movies. And uh, she wanted uh, a certain, she wanted nobody connected with the original film uh, involved with the stage production. And so they came up with the musical version of Mary Poppins that was on Broadway and did some touring, and that was the only connection she had with Disney after that point. She was so livid, in fact, that she really didn't want to go to the premiere, but decided to go just to show her face and really kind of try to show up Walt Disney. And it wasn't, she didn't have quite the emotional response in the theater and think it was so wonderful as they made it out in the film. She really was kind of upset about the whole thing. She really didn't like the cartoons, the penguins that were animated, and she didn't like the music. And she really didn't want either of those things, and she was bitter about all of that. Now, it's unfortunate that that's the way she felt about things, but I think the movie itself was tremendous, the things that came together out of it, the fact that it it won the number of Academy Awards that it won, that it was so spectacular, that it's still thought of as one of the greatest Disney films ever made, I think really speaks to that. Um, You say Mary Poppins and everyone thinks Julie Andrews and they know supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, and there's really something to be said for that. So the question is, why did she do it? And the short answer, the easiest answer is money. Uh, She had reached a point in her life where the book sales were not what they once were. And she was actually uh, becoming coming to the point where she was almost broke. And she was trying to write another book and she had writer's block and she couldn't quite get over the hump. And Walt Disney came to her with a tremendous proposal and uh, she got a lot of royalties out of it. She got some money up front. And so she made a nice uh, sum of money on the film. So it really was to her advantage to do it. It's just unfortunate that she kind of had a difference of opinion about how it should be done. So that's kind of the the real story. So the story plays a little bit differently in the film. And uh, when you watch it, very emotional. They do a nice job of bringing you from the highs to the lows. And you laugh and you cry and you feel certain ways about it. And everything is just very well done. I mean, it's just you're sitting there and you're watching it and you're just transported to another time. And that's what movies should be. You're transported to another time, another place. You feel like you're there and you're feeling the emotions of these people. And you really see what's going on and why this movie is so important to her, why this book is so important to her, why this story, why Mary Poppins is so important to her. And you get a sense of kind of why she became the bitter person she became. And it really kind of nicely kind of ties it together and gives you a sense of it. And when you sit there and you watch the film and you see the Sherman brothers or the representation of the Sherman brothers doing this, uh, these, these songs and putting this together, you get that sense of what it was like, the collaborative and creative effort that went into this and all the other productions that Walt Disney put together at that time. And you just think to yourself, this must have been an amazing time to be able to sit in a room and think through these things. And everybody called each other by their first name. And there was no, you know, there was, there was no pretenses and the doors were open and you could walk in and it was just, you know, something really special. And I, I can only imagine what that would have been like uh, to be there and be a part of that collaborative effort and really enjoy that and take it in. I, I, I imagine I, I read a review uh, or an interview with um, Richard Sherman, and he was talking about 
uh, what it was what it was really like, and that's kind of the way he described it. Other than the fact that Mrs. Travers was a very difficult person to work with. End of story. Um, but otherwise, it was just collaborative, and it was fun, and it was entertaining, and everything was just really, you know, it was just just a good time. So you get that sense of it in the film, and I think that's that's really important to see that and understand it because it really gives you a perspective on what it was like to work in that production facility at that point in time, and just uh, just to understand how it went and what it take, takes to make a movie. They did a nice job of um, putting together the. Um, the Feed the Birds song, that became Walt Disney's favorite song. Um, when he first heard it, when uh, Richard and Robert uh, played it for him, he said he loved it, and he just he was totally passionate about that song as being his favorite song. And in the movie, they kind of give you the sense of why it was his favorite song. You know, because it's it's not about, and nothing's about the money. It's it's about, you know, doing your best, right? And always always helping and doing something good and something greater. And when you see it, it kind of fits together, and you go, "Oh, that's kind of cool," because it, it really it was his favorite song. And when they put it in the when they put it in there, and he hears it, and he goes in and listens to it, I think the story is a little apocryphal that he's sitting outside, and he goes in and he he joins it. I think he actually came in the studio, and they wanted to show it to him. But whatever the case, very nicely done, and it kind of touches on you a little bit because then you realize what that song is all about. And when you really listen to it, I've seen Mary Poppins, you know, dozens of times in my life. And when I saw it as a kid, I thought it was just really cool and, you know, well thought out and it was fun and I enjoyed it. As a mature, uh, an immature adult, I would say, you know, somewhere in my 20s, I saw it and I thought, you know, I understood th- different things about it. I understood the purpose of the suffragette. I understood the purpose of, you know, what was going on between the chimney sweep and the relationships there and what, this, what story he was telling. Um, you know, Bert was telling some stories and so forth. And there was a little bit more going on there. And then as a mature adult, I understand it even differently. I, I understand the principle of, you know, the banks trying to get you to invest your money into the banks because the banks are stable. But there's so much more you can do with your life and your money and whatever. And it just was interesting to see that perspective kind of play out because they, they tell you about that in the, in the film. They, they give you that little piece of it. It's kind of subtle, but they give it to you. And when you see it, you go, oh, yeah, okay. I guess I, I, guess I did evolve into it and understand it. And that is pretty neat. I mean, I think that piece is pretty cool that you kind of get that and they really give you that. Now, one other thing I'll say about the relationship between Walt Disney and Mrs. Travers is that the, uh, the limo driver, Ralph, um, who's introduced in the story, in, a, in the storyline of the Saving Mr. Banks movie, it's kind of subtle how he's involved with Mrs. Travers. He does some things with her, and he kind of talks to her, and he gets to know her a little bit, and she's the only American she, uh, he's the only American she can tolerate. It, it kind of speaks to it. The reality is it was much more than that. He he became sort of a confidant for her. And he is the reason that she agreed finally to do it. She was willing to just back away and go broke, basically. And he convinced her to go ahead and uh, sign the contract. He had a lot to do with that. And I think, you know, that's underplayed a little bit in the story for good reason. But, you know, that's another piece to the story that I think is kind of important. And I'm glad that they showed it at least because he was really a, a critical player in getting the deal done. He wasn't, he wasn't doing it to help Disney's interest. He was doing it because it was the right thing to do. You know, here was this nice lady and, well, not so nice lady, perhaps. She was a bit of a curmudgeon. But, you know, who was a ni- nice lady he was driving around and she was nice enough to him. And he was just like, well, why aren't you doing this deal? And he kept talking to her and talking to her and talking to her and asking questions. And finally, she came to understand that it was really much more than just, you know, Walt Disney trying to take her book from her. 
right? They're, they're, she could make the money and she could have some creative rights and she could do something and she could get a, a really nice, um, a nice story out of it. Because he had taken her stories and made them so much more complete. You know, the books were, you know, kind of by themselves. They kind of didn't stand up to the, the scrutiny because there just wasn't enough to make a movie around them. But putting them together and creating a storyline that, that flowed through it makes a lot more sense, and it really came together. So Ralph takes, should take a lot of the credit for that and, and how it all came together. Now, of course, this is just one story in the litany of stories that happen around the Walt Disney Company, you know, and Walt Disney himself and the things that he did. But because this one was one that he had chased after for 20 years, and it became one of the most successful productions ever, I, I'm glad that they made this one in particular, that they told this story. I'd love to see some other stories around, you know, some of the things that happened perhaps uh, for the World's Fair or um, some of the other things that may have happened in, you know, the 1960s in that era where we were seeing that some of the creative results of this, maybe a little bit more about Imagineering or something. But this one was a nice foray into that field, and I really hope the Disney company gets a lot of success from this and chooses to do more with it because it was really, really good. And I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I highly recommend it. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you go and see it if you're a Disney fan, and I assume you are since you're listening to this podcast. I would suggest you go out and, and check out this movie. It was just so good. I mean, it was just so much fun. You, you watch it and you just go, wow. And I'm still, th- I saw it a couple of days ago and I'm still thinking about it like, what, what, else, what else happened there? Wow, that was cool. And I want to see it again. I mean, that's one of those films where I just say, I, I want to go and check this film out again because it was just so well done. Uh, it was just phenomenal. So there you go. That's my review of Saving Mr. Banks and a little bit about some other Disney entertainment. And uh, I hope I've given you a little bit of insight into what the uh, movie's all about, and I hope you've checked it out. And uh, actually, there's an, uh, there's an app for the iPad, if you have, uh, if you have um, an iPad, that's really pretty cool. It may also be for the, for the um, Android or the, uh, one of the other tablets, I'm not sure. But it's, uh, it's a very clever little app that takes you through the whole production sequence and talks about the backstory and gives you some other details that you know, I may have missed or I may have talked about. I'm not sure, but it's really pretty good, and it's well, well done and well articulated, and I think they do a nice job of kind of giving you that sense of what the story was all about. And it, it's a lot of fun, and I actually saw, read that and went through it before I went to see the movie, and I thought it kind of added something to the movie, so I knew a little bit more. Um, not that I didn't know the story before. I knew most of the elements of the story, but I'll admit, I didn't know all of them. I went and did some research and figured out what the rest of the elements of the story were because I was fascinated about it. And uh, the whole story just, just captured my interest. So that's my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. Now, please exit the moving podcast. The walkway is moving at the same speed as your podcast. Kindly take small children by the hand and watch your head and step. If you have questions, thoughts, or would just like to ask Dave a question please send an email to davesdisneyview at gmail.com. You can always find Dave's Disney View on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. Show notes for this podcast can be found on disneyworldpodcast.net. Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of Sound A Music. You'll find a link to the latest Disney-related autism awareness event on the show notes page. We also encourage you to check out Dave's iPhone apps. There are a couple of Disney-related apps, including a Hidden Mickey's app and a pin trading app.